Oh. Well, hello, everyone. It is that Williams guy here for another episode. And I got to tell you, the show's numbers have been sagging a little bit lately. And Brian Easter was just telling me the other day it was probably because everybody's taking summer vacation trips and, and the like. And it's not a big sag, but they're sagging. And I needed someone to come in and save the day. And like lift up our sagging ratings like he was Samson lifting up over and just just save us and bring us all back on course. And none other than David Cagle is here to answer that call. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. You know, that's actually something that I always tell people about you, Lee, is that it says a lot about you that you're willing to trade your viewing numbers uh, for your friendship with John Hearn to have him <laughs> continually back on the podcast. Well, I'm hoping to be a good influence on him and uh and uh maybe maybe bring him to the horse of the light some so how are you doing sir i am doing well as well as can be in the metal box i'm currently living in <laughs> uh, i do believe that you are our first guest on the show when we're recording that is outside of the continental united states oh that's cool yes um I know we can't say specifically where you are, but just give a general a general uh, update on where you are and what you're doing. So I'm currently in the kind of Horn of Africa region. Um, I'm deployed with the Oklahoma Army National Guard. That has been pretty much the biggest change since the last time I was on the podcast. I guess, should I do a brief reintroduction? For Absolutely. People? skip sure. the canon of the podcast uh, sure so my name is david cagle i'm currently well i guess currently is a weird word but i'm a full-time police officer in oklahoma uh i also teach for uh hardwired tactical shooting and american tactical shooting instruction so that's my link kind of the firearms world and then my newest gig is i am also uh an 11 Bravo infantryman with the Army National Guard. So they uh, thought it best to ship me halfway across the world. So here we are still making the podcast happen. Yep. And you got to spend uh, three or four months in the not so loveliest part of the state of Georgia. Yeah, I wish it was three or four months. Unfortunately, it was, it was the full six months. They okay. have the uh, so the current, yeah, Army Infantry training program is 22 weeks long plus two weeks of in and out processing. So I was out in the, the lovely state of Georgia for the full six months. Yeah, uh, of course, you're close enough to Alabama there to say that you were kind of in Alabama, too, I think. That's fair. That's fair. We had a guy in my class from Alabama that said the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, Fort Benning's barely hanging on the edge of, oh, I'm sorry, it's not Fort Benning anymore. Uh, Fort Moore is hanging on the, the edge of Georgia, yeah. but I'm ready to tip over in Alabama. Absolutely. But, I know we don't do politics on the show, so not to get political, but if you're right. going to rename a base after somebody, Hal Moore is a pretty solid person to pick. So. It's hard to argue with that choice. It is. It's definitely. hard to argue with that choice. Uh, of course, yeah, I guess we can touch on the historical aspect, but without touching on the politics of the name changes. But a reason a lot of those bases were named uh, as they were uh, 
was in the lead up to the Great War, which most of you incorrectly referred to as World War One. It was the Great War. Uh, was that they wanted to get buy-in from the South, and if we name these bases after, you know, after Confederates, that the South will accept it as as being what it is, and um, you know, maybe, maybe not. We'll we won the Great War, so I guess yeah, it worked we did. out for the time being. We did win the Great War. Uh, there's a great. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Shara books. Michael and Jeff Shara, a father and son, that that, that do historical fiction, and uh, they did one, or the son did one on uh, the Great War. And there's a great line in it where he's got you know Pershing in a meeting when the American Expeditionary Force is getting ready to go overseas. And then the Secretary of War, what we would now call the Secretary of Defense, says, we will give you two orders. We will tell you when to go, and we will tell you when to come home. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Yeah, that about sums it up. Yeah. And, you know, the, the French in the lead up to that suggested that we not send anyone over, any officer over higher than the rank of captain so that it would not lead to friction because they had the presumption that we were just going to send them replacement troops that would be under, under French command. And Pershing's like, no, we're going we're gonna to show up. You're going to say, this is your area of our area of operation, and then we're going to go win this war. Nope. That's, that's what they did. That. And that's what they did. And yeah, maybe if that's what happened, it were happening in more recent conflicts, maybe that would work better. But eh, I don't know. I'm not a military strategist. We'll see. So, well, I guess I should probably, since I know we're going to get into kind of the institutional side of the house later, mm -hmm. kind of story bridging how I came from the police world to the military world. It's kind of a mm -hmm. training discussion. Yeah. So, if you want me to go into that, I can go into that real fast. Kind of a absolutely, absolutely. And I am noticing that your that your little thing on the front of your hair quickly grew back. I was wondering how long that was gonna gonna take. Finally, yes. <laughs> My girlfriend was worried it was never gonna grow back because I, uh, I I got told by one of the drill sergeants at at Benning that I looked like a dirty Q-tip. So, yeah. I remember sending you a text message that you said, you know, you posted a picture like right after you got done with, with all your basic stuff and you're wearing a hat. And I'm like, you're wearing that so we won't see your hair, right? And you're like, yes. 100%. 100%. Yeah, there's a reason I've not been on the, the podcast again until now. So I look, I look like a regular, you know, regular person again now, which I'm very happy. All right. All right. But, so uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah. So. That's, I was super, obviously super heavily into the, the cop training scene, uh, mm -hmm. still am. And so I was training all the different skill sets and areas that you have to have to do to be competent at that job. And in, I think it was 2021, I went through uh, a basic SWAT school and then got onto a regional emergency response team um that kind of dealt with some of the more high profile calls in our area it was multi-jurisdictional and it's kind of a crazy deal we got a call one day uh from a neighboring county requesting kind of all of the quote unquote tactical teams in the area to respond because there was this dude who went crazy um 
murdered his wife while she was on the phone with 911. So all those dispatchers were messed up from that for a long time after, but shoots his wife, um, walks out on his porch. And as the cops respond, because he knew that they were coming since the wife had called 911, it was like something out of, out of the movie Heat like literally walks out and full auto mag dumps an entire drum magazine out of an AK into the windshields of these uh, responding units. And dude had an AK and shot one of the officers like seven times. I think he took seven, uh, seven, six, two rounds, ended up surviving miraculously. But they get there, there's, there's a gunfight that happens in this dude's like front lawn and he ends up bailing and running off into the woods. So they started this massive manhunt for this guy out in the woods, um, out in Pot County. And uh, we got there because uh, we were actually pretty close because where the county lines were and stuff. So we were one of the first teams that got there. And uh, the information that they gave us was, hey, this is what we know about this dude. He's had prior run-ins. Uh, he's a prior service infantry Marine. He's wearing, uh, rifle rated armor probably he has his full auto AK and they were iffy they were like he may have night vision too so it was crazy dude had gone live on Facebook like saying like I'm going to war with the cops like it was it was crazy it was like something out of a movie and that the first call I'd ever been involved with it was like that level of crazy obviously you know some of the other stuff I'd been in at that yeah. point that was the first time like dudes with machine guns like it was wild so we're there and you know how the kind of interagency communication works uh it doesn't yeah they they straight up they have this little map of the woods and they're like we think he's in this general area and we're pretty sure he's on this side of the road but we're not sure if he got there before or after the perimeter was set. So he may be on this side too. And their instructions were go off in the woods and find this guy. And uh, I had done what I considered a very heavy amount of training at that point, literally pretty much all geared towards clearing buildings, like your standard run of the mill SWAT urban stuff. And I'm like, I don't know anything really about patrolling in the woods, like looking for a dude like this. And obviously we couldn't say like, no, we're leaving. So we went out there and kind of did it. But the whole time I was like, this is a terrible idea. Um, I do not have the training that I would have wanted to have to do this. And obviously the guys on the team, we were kind of all talking about it and was like, this kind of open area movement, small unit tactics stuff is a big hole that we're missing. Um, especially where we live out in Oklahoma, I felt stupid that that hadn't really occurred to me beforehand because it wasn't the first manhunt I'd ever been on in the woods, but it was the first time I'd ever been up against like an infantry Marine trying to ambush us. So it was weird. But all of that is to say, like, super long-winded uh, version of me being like, I have some holes in my skill set that I probably need to fill. And that call ended up 
going um, about as well as possible. We didn't end up getting into a gunfight with the guy. He uh, self-selected and ended up shooting himself. And uh, they, they found him. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol ended up finding him like right before it got dark. That was another learning point was like the sun was going down and we'd all been out there for like nine hours looking for this guy and the sun's going down. And in my head, I'm like, there's like five teams here, like 200 cops total. Cause you know how it is every cop from every jurisdiction ever <laughs> going in there. And I'm like, of all the guys here, I think only the Oklahoma highway patrols tactical team had night vision. And I would later learn they didn't train with night vision a lot because um, I ended up going to night vision instructor school with a bunch of their guys after this for the same reason. Um, but like 90% of the dudes there didn't have nods. And if the bad guy would have had nods and actually wanted to smoke some cops, that would have been like the perfect area to do it in a totally dark area of the woods with a bunch of clueless cops walking around with white lights. So it was, that was one of the reasons we ended up getting into night vision. It was one of the reasons that a whole bunch of changes were made after that. Um, but coming out of that, I was like, how do I fix this? And literally from the time I was little, the only two things I ever wanted to be were a police officer and a soldier. And I realized I was like, well, I'm pretty squared away, handgun, pistol, or handgun, carbine, and shotgun. But I don't know anything about belt-fed machine guns. I don't know anything about grenade launchers. And I need to learn some small unit tactics. So there's really only one place to do that. And uh, a little while after that, I went ahead and enlisted in National Guard as a rifleman. And that's how we got here. Uh, yeah, yeah there's, there's just so many things <clears throat> Excuse me, in the cop side of things that you never foresee happening until they're happening. Definitely. And yeah, that's one of those, I've been in a couple of them where it's like, is it starting to go down? It's like, you know, we didn't cover this in the academy. And then it's also, I'm almost 5,000 hours of post-training at this point, and I've never trained for anything like this. Absolutely. And, and you know, we we tend to inertial institutional inertia is an amazingly powerful thing. And it is so hard to battle and it's so hard to direct or redirect. And we can you can have one incident happen and that becomes the entire consuming focus. Oh yeah. Definitely. And everything everything goes towards that. And quite frankly, the last decade, it's been, or longer, it's been the active shooter thing. And there's still people out there that aren't getting the memo on that. But, you know, that has been so all-consuming that we, the institutional, we all 18,000 agencies in the United States, we're tending to focus on certain little things and we're neglecting others. And it's not until something happens high profile or to an individual agency that it starts to shift that focus. And then unfortunately we run to that shiny thing and we forget all the other shiny things we've learned about in the past. And, you know, that's 
walking around in the woods at night looking for a dude with an AK-47 is just that's different than a than a traffic stop in downtown Jones, Oklahoma. Absolutely. And, you know, that was it was another thing that you always hear people talk about. Well, you know, you want to train for the trained bad guy. But 99% of the time as cops, you're going up against people who really don't have any training. So that was another <laughs> kind of weird thing about the call was that was the first time that thinking about it, I'm like, I know for a fact this dude has a certain level of training because we know his background. Um, and I can't remember. I, I know some of the dudes from his group had just come back. He was tied to a group of pretty crazy dudes. But uh, some of them had like just gotten back from doing uh, a tour in Syria and had seen some pretty serious stuff like volunteering with various groups and stuff. So they had like an established they had like Facebook videos of them doing CQB runs in like these little shoot houses they made. So it was the first time I'm like, people always tell you to train for the trained guy, but now I'm literally going up against some dudes that have a not insignificant level of training. So that is a very sobering thing uh, to have happen when you realize like, it's a low percentage thing. But so far in my career, I've unfortunately had a lot of low percentage things happen to me. So I'm starting to realize like all of these worst case scenarios are very much possible, even if they're not probable. So interesting stuff. You know, those are two very different words that have very different meanings. Yes. Yes, they are. So and we tend to focus on the prospect on the probable and give lip service to the possible. But yeah. if we focus on the possible, we kind of neglect the probable. Exactly. And so that balance, especially in law enforcement, is such a weird thing. Because I know dudes that spend like 90% of their time training for active shooters and like don't even work like anything around a patrol car or traffic stop based. And I'm like, Brother, you're going to make a lot more traffic stops than you, even if you get mm -hmm. in an unreal number of active shooter events, you're still going to make a lot more traffic stops. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, and that the active shooter is just driving everything. You know, obviously, the protection of school children is what higher priority is there than that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, we had it to a point where at one point in time, every one of our certified personnel was through at least alert level one. And we had practiced and, and trained in the schools, how to access the buildings, et cetera. And then you have massive amounts of turnover because it just is happening now for everybody. And we were in a training meeting uh, about a year ago. And someone said, well, we've done training and all that. And I said, and I said, I raised my hand. I said, oh, guys, all those people that we have trained are gone. There's nobody below the rank of sergeant that has been through that training now. Yeah. We've got to start all over, which also means we're not spending time on high-risk traffic stops. We're not spending time on some of the other things. And there's just not enough hours in the day to get to it all. There's not the, the balance is, is really crazy. And I, I've had that argument with people because especially working where I work in more of a rural area, 
like when we when we had these new hires that I was talking to about some of the things when I'm I'm giving them kind of their their intro brief first couple of times I meet them and I'm like you're going to hear a lot of things about the amount of shooting that we do and kind of the active shooter stuff and all of the firearms training just in general people love to say we do too much of that and blah 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 you know how it is but uh the thing is people don't care about how many tickets we write in the community well they do they don't like it if you write too many but they don't care about the things that like your typical police supervisor cares about they care about how fast you get there when the really bad stuff happens like the actual violence that occurs in the community that's what the citizens actually expect you to respond the right way to so I'm like, I do spend more time training for a low frequency event because, you know, what is it? It's not the odds, it's the stakes. Yep. And it's just, it's such a massive thing. You know, there was a municipality in my area that was conducting a survey as to whether or not they were going to disband their municipal police department contract with the sheriff or, or what option they were going to go. And I was on their advisory committee and they get ready to conduct this survey. And I tell them, you're, you're going to get, I can tell you what your results are going to be right now. The number one complaint you're going to get on the survey is about traffic. The number one generator of complaints about your agency is going to be the officers enforcing traffic laws. And it's like, we've got this, this, crazy dichotomy of this is the thing that the citizens complain about the most but it's also when we try to deal with it they yep. complain about that the most oh yeah it's a huge thing right now my my entire town is up in arms about a stop sign that was added to an area that had a bunch of wrecks so i know exactly yeah. what you're talking about yep and everybody wants the the traffic problem was all someone else's problem, not my problem. So don't stop me and give me a ticket, but stop them and give them a ticket. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. no, I meant these other people. Yeah. I meant all these other people that are causing problems. And, you know, and it's kind of funny about the, 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 what is the definition of a traffic problem? You know, if you have to sit at the light for more than two cycles versus, you know, right. Do we actually need traffic reporters to, to get people around? Uh, and, you know, and it's just, it's just all that's relative. All that's relative. All right. So you are, how many years you've been toting a badge now? So four, because I, uh, 25 now. I started right when I was 21. So, right. Yeah, right after three years. Get, get yeah. <laughs> yeah unfortunately four years right now makes you a wily veteran um yeah so well, you're well we're going with your your introduction to the law enforcement peace officer world is still fairly fresh it's still fairly new and right. the paint ain't dry on your paint being painted green uh with the military now so you've had two relatively recent um exposures to this whole institutional world and that's coming off of a lot of uh training from the private citizen side or our friend eric would call them decent normal human beings so just kind of give us a comparison of you know what do you see on the institutional side of the blue versus the institutional side of the green yes 
where are holes in all of it? What's good about all of it? Just that won't get you in trouble anywhere you're going to talk. Right. That's I've been uh, I've been super lucky, really, on all three fronts because kind of the pieces have just all aligned for me to have a really solid uh, amount of time training in all three areas now as a private citizen, as a police officer, and as a soldier. Uh, just because of the way things played out, because as people that listen to my other podcasts with, you know, I sort of just stumbled across Paul Howe down in Nacogdoches, was able to train with him a ton um, before I was a cop, which led me to Tom Givens, which led me to, you know, all that stuff. So I had a really solid training background as a private citizen. Then I became a police officer. And I started off when I was in college as a reserve officer. So I went through a reserve academy. Then as soon as I was done with that, I went full-time. So I had to go through a full-time academy. So then I had two law enforcement academies that I'd gone through. So I got to see double the, the issues there. And then obviously I sought out like the, uh, the other training opportunities that I've talked about going into the continuing education stuff on the law enforcement side. So got to see a lot of how things were done just based off of that. And then when I went into the military, um, they were still doing the 22 week uh, OSET one station unit training cycle for infantrymen. So I got six months of training initially, uh, which is it used to be 14 weeks total basic and your your AIT uh, advanced individual training portion. Now it's 22 weeks. So they extended it by all that time. So I got the six months starting out. Literally the day I graduated uh, from the infantry school and got my blue cord, I drove home, or I say I drove home, I drove back to Oklahoma and left for the uh, pre-deployment training for this mobilization. So I literally rolled straight into another three months uh, of training after that, and now I'm deployed. So the last 10 months straight basically have been nothing but uh, training with the Army. So I got to see basically a little under a year straight of how the Army does things. So a lot of time to reflect on kind of the institutional differences there. And the main one that will be obvious to pretty much everyone is the police side of the house really likes pistols. And the military side really likes rifles, and neither one does a particularly good job with the other. So that was uh, something I was talking to a couple of guys uh, that had taken classes from Hardwired uh, on Facebook yesterday, and they were commenting on this video of all of these cops running to this active shooter event that are bringing pistols like they know it's an active shooter and they they don't pull a rifle or a shotgun or anything like that and i made the comment that uh everyone's favorite state level law enforcement training entity oklahoma cleat council on law enforcement education and training they completely took out long guns in the state academy there is zero shotgun instruction and zero rifle instruction in the entire academy so obviously you have a lot of cops in Oklahoma that really don't do a lot of continuing education after they get out of the academy because 
you know the deal they're required to have like 24 hours a year mm-hmm. zero of it is required to be firearms training other than their annual qualification so a lot of cops never get trained on a shotgun never get trained on a rifle or it's just thrown in their patrol car and so people go to what they know even when it's a bad idea so that's something i see all the time and the reciprocal of that being in the military um it's hilarious when people are like no I don't need the the pistol train. Don't worry, I was in the military. Like, I I never touched a pistol one time uh, through the first six months of the infantry school. They never cover it because your regular enlisted infantryman is just generally not going to use a pistol. Um, more of an officer thing. There's caveats to that, uh, which I will get to later. I ended up carrying a pistol my first bit of time here for a little a uh, little bit because of a job dependent thing but for the most part the army does not care about pistols for enlisted guys um at all outside of like the military police so they have completely different emphases on what they're training for and the way that they train is completely different army basic training you go through and it's they put the basic and basic training because it's a bunch of people who have never used firearms before, right? So they have guys who've never shot anything and they have to teach them in like three weeks how to go from never having picked up a firearm to being able to do a qualification course where you're changing firing positions, doing three separate reloads and shooting at targets from 50 to 300 meters out which is kind of a lot to ask, especially on the scale that they're doing it, because the instructors are under-equipped for what they're doing, obviously. Nothing against the drill sergeants, but they're not professional firearms instructors. They're professional, every single thing a soldier is supposed to know instructors. And so, just like we were talking about with the skill sets, um, all of the different skill sets you have to balance as a cop, all of the different skill sets you have to balance as an instructor, as a drill sergeant, you have to be able to teach all of those. So you have a bunch of guys that are not eminently qualified firearms instructors in the first place, trying to teach a bunch of people with zero experience or safety habits. So really just dudes not shooting themselves is like a win. And uh, the fact that they pretty much are able to get every single person qualified is impressive in and of itself. But you leave basic training with really not much requisite skill with a rifle. And then going into the infantry school, they do some more more training that's better. They do some close quarters marksmanship and uh, various like stress shoots and stuff. But again, when you have people that aren't specifically trained to do that one thing, uh, the training quality is not super great for guys coming out of the military. So it has a lot of the same, I would say, institutional issues in that the police side of the house and the military side of the house, it's one skill that they've got to pack into about 20 different skills that you're supposed to learn and you're supposed to be uh, acceptable at every single one of them. So they can't just spend an inordinate amount of time training guys up on it. So I would say they have a lot of the same issues uh, that any institution is going to have just based off of the volume of people, their experience level, 
and the ability to mass produce the instructors needed uh, to give them the, the training. So we can go back to the blue side of that for just a second. You get our academy class of recruits that, for the most part, are the same. They've never fired firearms. Definitely. And like in Georgia, the academy staff gets one week to get them to a point where they pass so they qualify on the state course. It's the same uh, in Oklahoma. It's 40 hours is all they yeah. get. And when I say it's one week, it's really not truly that because they'll divide them into two groups and half of them is doing something else while the other half is on the line etc right. it's called range okay. week but it should be really range half week range two and a half days yep. and you know it's the whole thing is let's get them to an 80 on the state qualification course which does not prepare someone to go out and actually use that weapon and it is a weapon uh, we can euphemistically call it anything else, but it is a weapon. Um, it, you know, there's, there's not anything on really, it's just, there's no utilization training. It's just all technical training. There's no application side of it. And, you know, they'll, they'll clear, you know, they may do a, a class on clearing a structure. They may do that kind of stuff, but everything is done in these blocks and it's never blended where you have to apply, okay, I have to make a use of force decision. I have to, okay, this is a non-deadly use of force situation. I need a baton or I need a taser or I need hands-on. Now, all of a sudden, it's switched and I've got to get to deadly force or it was says deadly force, but now that wheel has turned and it's gone to non-deadly and I got to get rid of this gun and get the hands-on and none of that stuff that actually plays out in the field. And then we're, we the public is absolutely just shocked when this trained person gets thrown into this hellacious situation and they don't have the skill sets to fall back on. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's another thing that I keep trying to explain to people because one good on Georgia for their 80% standard <laughs> here in Oklahoma, it's a 72% standard. So you know, it's already a stupidly low requirement anyways for people who actually train. But the thing I always say to people is that the reality of your skill doesn't matter to the people you serve until it does. They expect you when they call to be a black belt level fighter, to be an IDPA grandmaster, USPSA grandmaster <laughs> level shooter, to be like a a bar certified attorney and legal, like they just expect all of this stuff because people watch movies, right? Yeah. So if you're not willing to make yourself a professional, like that doesn't change the fact that they expect you to be a professional, just makes it to where you won't perform like one. Mm -hmm. I always tell people that like people's expectations of you are already high and uh, they're going to expect you to do stuff that you are not going to be capable of doing coming out of your initial training and that you're not going to be able to do an entire career um, if you just do your 24 hours of state mandated training every year, which is three days worth, which is insane. But all of that, it's, it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff with the Army. Um, all of the people that I know that are really good shooters um, are good shooters in spite of being in the Army rather than because of the Army. Uh, 
that's not totally true. Like some of the guys that get sent to like Benning's sniper school and the guys that go to Camp Robinson for the National Guard side, like there are some really, really good schools in the Army. The designated marksman school, the sniper school, uh, all that kind of stuff. But we're just talking about initial entry training here. You have to seek seek out the further education like that. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about the boxes that people put into it. I was surprised. Um, the military makes the use of force training that cops get look like a JD. Because the amount of force decision making that they teach you in the military is like zero. Um, that's it's literally like, hey, those guys over there are bad. If anyone <laughs> outside of the river, shoot them. Uh, the the full if, if they're not dressed like us, yeah, that's a uh, as as a guy that I used to know. Uh, often used to say if they're not running from the americans shoot them which is the use of force stuff is just crazy so the extent of the use of force training that you get on the military side for us was the chaplain came in and spent like 45 minutes giving us these weird hypotheticals and we just talked about them literally there's like 200 dudes like sitting cross-legged on the floor And the chaplain's like, well, what would you do if this happened? Everyone's like, I don't know. I I haven't been trained. He's like, you should think about that. And uh, so it's all kind of comical. Like, it would be funnier if it didn't directly impact, like, the readiness of of all of these people in warrior professions. But I just, I feel for people on the cop side. I feel for people on the military side. because it's like Daryl Bulky always says, uh, the Air Force does not expect like an F-22 pilot to go personally finance his own training. Like they teach you how to do that job. And then you take like your standard infantry rifleman or your standard patrol cop. And it's like, hey, if you don't personally invest in yourself and spend all this money and buy like, you know, all this stuff, like you're not going to get there which is the sad reality of it, but that is the reality of it. And in certain circumstances, that may be used against you. Exactly, exactly. So it, yeah. it really is. It, it's crazy. It's kind of a no-win situation, but uh, luckily, luckily there's still a ton of just great resources out there. Um, there's a ton of great NCOs in the military that are willing to take time out to spin people up to the point that they didn't get in their initial training, which is good. Um, there's a ton of cops that do the same thing. There's a ton of free free training available to both that a lot of times people don't even know to utilize, uh, like alert for the law enforcement side, which we'll get into more when we talk about force on force here in a minute, because I have some alert thoughts, but uh, yeah, that's just kind of going through all of it. Like, I don't want to sound negative because there's a lot of positives too, uh, but I see similar problems with all of it. And overall, absolutely massive gain in my overall capability being in the military, going through uh, the military training. I got so much out of it. I learned a ton about small unit tactics. I learned a ton about land navigation, all of this different stuff. Um, 
I got competent on all those weapon systems that I've never been exposed to. There really is a lot of stuff that uh, they do a good job on that I that I was able to take a lot out of. But I don't know how I would have seen it if I went into it without the training background that I had, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. I remember you and I talking before you went to the police academy. And it was like, David, you're going to have to turn off parts of your brain. And just, and, and another guy that I don't know if you know him or not, but uh, is currently going through an academy in Tennessee. And I still was like, look, just nod your head and say yes, sir, and get through it. Yes. And, and, and do what you're told to do, accomplish the stuff. But probably what's going to happen to you is that when they see that you're actually competent on the range, they're just going to leave you alone and go move on to someone who's that they're struggling to get to the qualification range and or get you the qualification score and he sent a text from a break at the range he's like yeah they walked up looked at my target nodded and went to somebody else and like to just completely leaving me alone and that is one of the things with training is sometimes is when you've actually been exposed to really good training and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a training situation that is lacking and it's it's hard to get through that sometimes it is that's uh it's funny you mentioned that because that was actually one of my first ever conversations with john hearn was i was at the range master basic instructor course in, uh, at boondocks um which i'm sure you i'm sure you've been to and i had just won the top gun award for the class and it, Hearn came up to me and I'm like, oh, he's going to like congratulate me or something like that's cool. And he goes, so uh, two things for you. Number one, when you go to the police academy, shut your mouth. Don't say anything. Literally never tell anyone that you have any training and uh, that'll help you. And number two, don't get a policy named after you and don't get a bridge named after you. And to this day, those two pieces of advice have served me extremely well. Yep. You don't want your name as part of a Supreme Court decision. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but it's funny you mentioned the uh, the thing about, you know, you have instructors that will walk up and I've, I've had this happen. Um, anyone who sort of trains has had this happen in an institutional setting. Like they see your targets really good and they just move on. And I didn't get that. Um, from the student side until later when I started instructing more. And it's like, you can't fault those guys because uh, for example, my, my best friend, Tanner Smith, uh, who I'm not sure if you've met him or not, but uh, yeah, he just has been coming through all of the, the same stuff, CSAT and Range Master mm -hmm. and all the instructor certifications and getting him spun up. Super proud of him, just got out of Cleat Firearms Instructor School but he's finally started teaching himself and he just taught a three-day patrol rifle school of like all brand new people, like people who had never touched a rifle before. And so we were talking later about how you handle a class like that when you're the only instructor pretty much and you have, you know, 15 guys that are all kind of messed up. And I told him, I was like, you have to, you have to delegate your the attention that you give because if somebody's doing well 
Like I would love to stand there and give them more personalized stuff to fix on them. But a lot of times in a class like that, you can't do it. Like if someone's doing well, okay, good. You're not one I have to worry about shooting yourself in the foot. I'm going to move over to this guy and fix the massive issues that he has going on. Uh-huh. Really, you can't fault the instructors for doing it because it's, it's kind of by necessity in, in some of those classes that have large numbers of students, small numbers of instructors. Yeah. And of course, on the law enforcement side, that can kind of also lead to a false sense of security. Because I, I would go to classes early on. Yeah. And I would be like in the top one, two, sometimes, you know, as low as third shooter in the class. And I thought I was good. You're really good, right? I thought I was good. And then later I get exposed to this whole other world. It's like, wow, I really wasn't all that good. I was just the only guy with one eye working amongst the blind. And um, big fish in a small pond and all that. Trust me, I know how that is. Yeah. And it's, you know, we can, we can go on and on and on about what is training and what is good and what isn't and everything, but it's just, I think that's the age old, um, age old question. And what we see, I think, I think I've never been in the military, uh, but from the military side of the house studying history is that we get massive amounts of people somewhat prepared. And then when it actually breaks out, we throw them into the fray and they kind of figure it out as they go and and it kind of weeds and then unfortunately some it's there's a thing called acceptable losses there's all this other stuff that happens on the green side that does not happen on the blue side because we don't have acceptable losses on the blue side theoretically um but it's still left a bunch of people to figure it out on the fly right and another thing that i guess they kind of have in common is uh similarly when you're like you know if you start out just as a cop or as a soldier you might think you're really good at shooting because on the military side uh and they vastly improved the rifle qualification Mm -hmm. the modern army rifle qual way better than it used to be but the target size is still like a full size they call them ivans they're they're like basically full-size little silhouettes of like little russian dudes mm-hmm. and if you hit it anywhere anywhere if you shoot that dude in the toenail it counts so a dude hitting that target at 300 yards which works out to like something crazy like if you shoot like four to six moa you're you're gold you're gonna hit it and uh so dudes think they're really really good and then you take him to like a quality training class and this dude's like, all right, shoot this B8 at 200 yards, Chuck Pressburg style. And they're just like mind blown because no one's ever even held them to that kind of accuracy standard before. Same thing with like the police uh, pistol stuff. Like the first time I saw Louisiana's state pistol target for their police qualification, it is staggering how big the scoring ring is and if you hit like anywhere on that thing it counts so guys that keep seeing the scores of like in the military 36 out of 40 and up is expert and they're like oh man i'm an expert like the word expert has a certain connotation to it in the english language right like if you tell someone they're an expert 
and they don't have enough experience to know otherwise, they're going to naturally assume they're an expert. That is a logical <laughs> thing to have happen. So I knew guys that were shooting like consistent 36 out of 40. Um, and they're like, wow, I'm really, really good. And using the John Hearn rule of keep your mouth shut, I was like, not going to say anything. But in my head, I'm like, man, you would really benefit from some quality private sector firearms instruction. So same thing with the cop stuff. Like a dude sees 100% written on a target every time he shoots. He must think he's really good, right? Because he can keep every round on a human-sized silhouette 25 yards and in. And then you ask that same dude to shoot the black on a B8 at 25 yards, and suddenly he's not going to be seeing hundreds on the scorecard anymore, and uh, it changes things. Yeah. I've been trying to expose our people to the Bakersfield qual. And I usually try to do it like right after they've shot shot our qual. And like they'll they'll shoot like a mid-90s or something on ours. And I'm like, oh well, I, I, I'm I'm in the 90s today. Okay. Here, let's shoot this. Yep. And it's usually what I haven't been shooting it, like having everybody en masse doing it, but like out of each group, I grab like the best person. And have them run the, or, well, not the best person, the best score. Uh, you know, have them run the qual. And then I explain kind of the, you know, the history of it and everything like that. And it's like they're sitting there looking at it wide-eyed. And what I'm trying to, to impart is don't buy into your scores on this one qualification course as being, being it. And uh, I taught a, a contract class for a state agency that is not in my state here recently. And the last thing that I did in the day was running through the Bakersfield. And then I talked with some of their cadre actors. Like the reason I did that was to give them a sense of perspective. And because I sold her on this whole thing as a 10 round status check. Yeah, this is something you can go run up, set up, go shoot, see where you are. Yeah. And you can do it with your with your 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 particular work unit and whatever. And if you're not up to par, that's where you need to go work. Yeah, and if you're doing it Bakersfield style, you literally drive your patrol unit up and just yeah. get out and do it. So yeah, yeah, and 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 no qual is perfect. You know, there, there's yeah Bakersfield's only ten rounds. It's only you know four shooting problems, whatever. But it will tell you a lot about where your skill set is at any particular. Oh, absolutely. Moment. And uh, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but it does tell you a lot. And I believe it told you that your score was higher than Hearn's score on it at the (laughs) Conclave, if I'm not. Yes, it did. did. Yes, it did. We're up to Uh, three. That's that's three (laughs) Hearn bashes that we've got in. So we're doing well. And you worked that you worked that one in quite well, sir. I applaud <laughs> you. I applaud you on the on this on the uh, the skillfulness. Yeah, being able to slip that in. And uh, Cecil Birch will enjoy that one. Good, good. I've yeah. man. Side note: Cecil Birch is really. Yeah. I've been talking to Cecil a lot lately. That guy has been mm-hmm. a really, really good mentor to me, and I'm very appreciative. So, yeah. so if you're listening, shout out to you, Cecil. But uh, back to the qualification score thing. Yeah. That was, that was a thing when I started getting a little more uh, of the ability to run guys through training at my department. Just you know how it is. It's like, hey, this guy's mm-hmm. good at shooting. Go, go shoot with him. Uh, 
we started, I started having guys shoot progressively harder qualifications. Like, okay, you shot the state qual, now shoot the FBI's qual, now shoot and so on and so forth until I pretty much top guys out with uh, the LAPD SWAT, SWAT qual, not the bonus course, but uh, mm-hmm. one of their, their older SWAT quals. And uh, that shows guys the difference a lot, especially because like on the LAPD qual, you switch from a giant target to the BT-5 which has a very, uh, very appropriate and reasonable scoring ring on it. So, or the inner ring on it. So just like showing guys that kind of stuff, I've had a lot of success just opening guys' minds up to the fact that like, hey, there are higher standards out there, which you can't blame people for not having higher standards if they've never seen the higher example. So that's, that's something I think is, is really good. And for all of the, I know a lot of cops listen to this. Like if you have the chance to go shoot like scored drills with people you work with, I highly recommend it because I've, I've converted a lot of people to kind of the training side that way. Yeah. I did not keep a running clock so that I would know I should have. So I would know at exactly which point in time in this episode that you were going to break the internet. Uh, but now is that time folks David is about to break the internet if you're driving you might need to pull over because there may be a seismic shift or something whatever but here it comes three two one David break the internet okay not the smoothest transition we've ever made (laughs) (laughs) no the uh everything we've kind of talked for uh, talked about uh up to this point was pretty pretty standard podcast stuff like ah cop standards bad uh, but kind of moving into uh another topic that i've been considering having a lot of discussions with with people about is the subject of force on force force on force training and where it sits with uh with the evolution of things so like I don't know anything about how Oconee does it. Do you guys do any force-on-force training with your people? Right now, we're, we're struggling to get people out to answer calls. Uh, we're oh. doing that nationwide thing. So that's the only force-on-force they're getting at the moment is alert level one. Okay. Actually, a perfect lead-in for what I'm talking about. So one of the big things that I've been seeing lately and uh i have to you have anything you talk about on the internet you have to like make these giant prefaces so that people don't make the most ridiculous like misconstrue what you're saying in weird ways so first i made a list um i have to announce my credentials for even speaking about force on force training right or else you'll have what happens to lee all the time where people tell him he's not allowed to talk about red dots on the internet but you told uh, me before the show that I, I am now, now you have deemed me worthy of discussing this amount yeah. of time. Yes. Now, now that you uh, cleaned the Georgia Rogers range with, with your red dot mounted pistol, you can now speak about it on the internet because that's sort of like a competition-y thing, right? But uh, <laughs> anyways, going back, uh, force on force, I think it is super important. Uh, I've done force on force evolutions, obviously through American Tactical Shooting Instruction, Bill Rapier's company that I work for now. Uh, done stuff with Psyac Tactical Group when I was down at CSAT, 
we did a lot of force on force in various ways. Uh, I did force on force when I trained at Valor Ridge uh, with Bill Blowers, with Chuck Haggard, uh, through Centrifuge. So I've done these force on force EVOs with a lot of different people between the military, the police world, and the private citizen world, uh, at least a few people in each. And I am a huge fan. I think that force on force training is a massive upgrade to your capability. If you've never done it, you will learn a ton. It will show you holes uh, in your game that you need to fix. It will help you get better at certain things. Like most people just don't see their sights. Like the first couple of evolutions they do with some munitions. And then you realize that you start picking them up and suddenly you're seeing them every time. And so there's a lot of things like that that are just massively beneficial. And because there are so many massive benefits, people don't like when you say anything negative about force-on-force -force training, which goes into the, the talk that we have hashed and rehashed about, like, who's allowed to teach gunfighting? Do you have to have been in a gunfight to teach tactics and stuff like that? And people tie that into, well, I've done force-on-force -force training, which is the exact same thing. And so it's... It's all a weird argument, but I do have a problem with people equating doing simunitions and saying that that is pretty much the same as like an actual experience uh, doing the thing for real, which for the record, I do not think is a requirement to be a firearms instructor. But uh, you, you hear that a lot. Like people say, well, you know, I've never done this, but I have done a lot of force on force and I've seen this, which can be a good data point or it can be not such a good data point because simunitions is not perfect whatsoever. And the main thing that I have an issue with when it comes to force on force is number one, force on force evolutions are not created equal by any stretch of the imagination. It's like any other faucet training. Um, the person that you're training with completely determines whether it is awesome or whether it's horrible. There is a relatively well-known school um, that maybe like person for person probably trains about as, as many people as, as any school in the nation year for year. They teach a force on force class that is horrible, that I have never met anyone that came out with any kind of confidence, and it instead basically scares people out of carrying their pistol. Because the way you design force on force is supposed to give people confidence in the flat range training that you're giving them and validate the things that they're learning. You can set anybody up to lose in a force on force at EVO. That's why your op four is so important. Your role players have to know what <laughs> and have a script to go off of because it's like Lee and I were talking about the pre-show. It's not a game of paintball. If it becomes a game of paintball, you pretty much lose all of the training value from it. So I am like a huge proponent of correctly done force on force because people saying, well, we used a simunitions pistol, so it's force on force and I learned a lot from it not necessarily true at all like just because you used a sim gun does not mean it was like a shiv works ecqc 
level experiential learning lab, like Craig calls it. Uh, so that that's the number one thing is like the quality control is really bad uh, across force on force stuff. But more than that, it doesn't matter how well you design it. You can have the most well thought out scenario, situational drill, whatever it is you're doing force on force wise, it will always still be a simunition round. And if you're doing simunitions responsibly, everyone's got a paintball mask on or some you know form of PPE. And a lot of times it doesn't even really hurt when you get shot by them. If you have on like certain types of clothing and stuff and people always, armor up with you know like three layers of sweaters and <laughs> stuff that you see but uh the pain that comes like there has to be a pain consequence for doing the wrong thing and you're never going to equal the pain consequence of being dead if you do the wrong thing which means that people will always do stuff that they wouldn't actually do if it was a real bullet instead of a simunition round. And I don't know why people get very upset about that. Um, and especially like people integrate airsoft all the time into, into training. Uh, we use airsoft a lot at Amtech. Uh, we use airsoft out of Valor Ridge when I was out there. There's a lot of stuff airsoft's good for, but it will always be an airsoft gun. And the range on them is so short that if you're past a certain distance, you can literally run around with no fear of getting shot. Like it really doesn't hurt. There's all kinds of stuff. So people are going to do crazy stuff to game the scenario because all humans will eventually game something if they do enough reps on it to win. And so if you're not super careful about your training, you will ingrain bad habits because it's very hard to, to match like the actual, the actual thing about it. And Again, I'm not trying to be that guy. I do not believe you have to have been in a gunfight or anything like that to teach a lot of things in the firearms world. But as somebody that has had bullets, you know, exchanged their way, it, if you think you don't want to enter that room when you might get shot with a paint round, you really don't want to enter that room when you might not come out of the room. So I've done... The airsoft force on force evos, the simunitions ones, all the way up to unfortunately having to do the thing for real. And it's all super different. And again, I'm not I'm not saying that force on force isn't awesome, but I'm saying it's not that. And there's really no way to recreate everything about that, which isn't a knock on force on force that it isn't the exact same thing as the real thing. There's still a million things you can take away from it. And it's still the best that we currently have to replicating a lot of things in the real world. But people misconstrue being the best technology we currently have with being the best technology that could exist, which is not the same thing. So uh, yeah, I, I think the quality or the value of force on force is tremendously impacted by the quality of the people that are running it. And what it is being used for. Uh, for instance, uh, I went through Fletzi's use of force instructor course, which yeah, was a, you know, a, you know, 80 hour use of force lab. It's a dream for guys like us. 
and they have trained role players that follow a script and they do it. And there's a lawyer following you around, questioning you about every decision that you make. And there's skin in the game where if you fail, you get sent home. Right. Uh, yes, that, having higher stakes is a massive thing. That That's putting a different, different level on it versus I've been in a force on force evolution where they put, they made took tape and made a box on the floor and they put you in the middle of that box and you were not allowed to move out of that position and then you're confronted by multiple assailants and like off to my left is a hallway right yeah <laughs> i'd go out the <laughs> why would i stand here when i've got multiple people coming from that from this direction went right over there i've got a hallway with two entry points that i can go and i can make them come after me versus standing right here in the middle of this floor taking this assault and then they're after the end they're saying what it taught us and everything's like it taught me that this was a poorly run exercise is what it taught me you know i'm thinking that to myself and i'm saying that to them but uh there's got to be skin in the game you have to be able to be willing to accept defeat for learning value. Uh, but there's also this, as you mentioned, pe crushing people's confidence. You can't let force on force turn into tactical grabassery. Right. And that is so common when it's like an officer survival class and we got 20 cops that are playing both the good guys and the bad guys and everything. It always turns into this person that goes off script that yeah, somebody they does want, something. They want to beat each other. If yeah. you get an, an op four or role players that want to beat the other guys, they're like, okay, right. I'm here to shoot this guy before he shoots me. It yeah. becomes like this little paintball game. And there's times where yeah. that's designed where that is the whole point is legitimate yeah. force, force. You're each trying to shoot each other, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of times that's not what it is. Right. And if you have people whose sole goal is is to win, it gets weird. Yeah. Yeah. You know, back when I first started my training business and I you know, put up my web page, I went very, very, very detailed and specific into my training background. You know, the classes I've taken, all that kind of stuff. And part of that was not a, hey, look at all this stuff that I've got, because a lot of it's really not relevant to the to the whole training thing um the business side of it but i was actually combating a local training group that was out running force on force scenarios and they were taking like you know bob the car salesman and betty the bank tailor that were coming up to coming to their classes and they were throwing them into a force on force scenario and it was like, they were all of a sudden, now you're the cop that's making a traffic stop on this car. They've got no basis whatsoever to play that function. And, and even in a scenario, or whatever, and like they walk up and they perform hard. Like this company's putting the videos of these scenarios up on their webpage and stuff. And these people are performing horribly from a cop perspective. And then the people are there, you know, the trainers are patting them on the back and telling them what kind of a, you know, good job they did. So huh. I'm, I'm they, so glad. people learn nothing from that scenario. Yes. And I'm so glad that you said that because I totally would have forgotten like the main point that I was trying mm -hmm. to get to, uh, that you just reminded me of with that, which you're a hundred percent correct. 
Like it has, it has to be relevant, right? But they also, they have to, like they have to have been prepared for it, which is what you're talking about. You can't put somebody in force on force is like the final evolution of like mm-hmm. the ladder. Like, you know, yeah. you bring somebody in you teach them the safety rules and then you have them do dry practice and then you do some limited live practice and then you do more live and then you're teaching them how to maybe integrate some movement with that and you're doing different stuff on the flat range until you finally graduate, you know, to doing some some force on force and that kind of stuff. Once you have an entire baseline built and that was the first episode I did when I was on the podcast was talked about baseline level proficiency, right? Uh-huh. And if you skip that and you don't have your solid base of skill and you get put into force on force, it's going to be crazy and you're going to get nothing out of it because, for example, alert. I said we would talk about alert and we will. Again, have to preface it for the internet. I appreciate alert. Um, they put on cost-free training for law enforcement uh they bring a lot of value added to the law enforcement world like a ton of cops that would never go out and purchase a class on certain things like the fact that alert brings a free class to their area they're able to get it that's awesome i've been through alert classes um they do exist but the the problem with alert is most of their stuff involves zero live fire whatsoever and so you have people that go to their class who have almost zero flat range skills which is paul howe has been super vocal about this being an issue you have people who show up who don't have the requisite skills to put into the scenarios and alert is teaching them then like the cqb active shooter stuff and when you get to the actual point that they're doing the force on force like they're shooting rounds into the ceiling, like it brings not seeing your sights to a whole new level because people just go wild because they revert to what people with no training do when they have basically no training. Uh, And that's a huge issue too, because you are going to get way less than that. And it's another kind of artificiality of force on force training. You can walk your rounds on target with a SIM gun because they don't, they only shoot like 300 feet per second or something like that. Like you can see them in flight. So you can like jelly Bryce point shoot your way on target. Uh, if you're doing a force on force scenario and you're not seeing your sights, whereas in real life it doesn't work like that. And if you are not looking at your sights past, you know, whatever distance you can point shoot to, that's another discussion. But if you don't see your sights by and large, you're not going to hit anything. So it becomes this massive issue of like they're reinforcing the wrong thing. So then it's almost worse than not having any training at all because it's negative training. Like not only are you not learning things, you're learning the wrong thing. So the progression there is off for a ton of people. There are academies, law enforcement academies in the U.S. that do like high-risk vehicle stops before they do their live fire firearms blocks. So people like completely reversing, they don't have the skills built to do any of this stuff. And you put them into something that they're set up to fail on uh, because they don't have the building blocks. So I have a big problem with that 
being done incorrectly and forced on force training too. So Dave Spalding published an article this week, I believe it was in Guns and Ammo, where he has like a tri triangle of the hierarchy of firearms training. And at the bottom of the triangle is what he termed as the essentials. Some people call it fundamentals. Dave refers to it as essentials. And that's basically square range training. And then the next level up the triangle is combatives. You know, that's taking and, and starting to put in some of the, the combative applications of, of the, the, the pistol or whichever. You know, you can, you can apply this to shotguns or rifles or whatever, where you're starting to add in, you know, shooting from, from different positions, the, all the other clearing buildings, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. Until finally at the very tip of the, the triangle or the pyramid is, you know, the interactive training. Well, you, you know, if you follow that progression, yeah, what, what you're describing in some of these other programs, they're skipping that whole middle step and they're never even doing the first yeah. one. Exactly. And I've seen it so many times because it's funny. I say this every time I'm on your podcast, mm -hmm. I end up talking about how awesome Paul Howe's training methodology is because it is pretty awesome. But uh, the way that he brought up that I watched him bring up cops forever is installing all this flat range stuff, doing the flat range stuff, live fire in a shoot house. He, that's one thing he's always been super adamant on is you have to do the live fire shoot house before you do the like simunitions force on force side of it, because live firing in a shoot house is kind of that middle mix of what you're talking about. You're bridging the skills together. It's completely different than if you just skip to the little simunition pop guns. So, hundred percent. Yeah. There's no perfect system. I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, just on the, uh, I mentioned I call simunitions pop guns sometimes because they literally they make like this whole airsoft like mm -hmm. little pop noise when you shoot them, which is another huge like artificiality that people don't talk about enough, um, which I didn't quite understand until I went to the military because this ties into what we were talking about before, the difference in military and law enforcement. Military does simunitions, but what they do a lot more than sims is blanks. They use blanks a lot. And blanks inside like a shoot house are super loud. <laughs> uh, it, it's like shooting a gun inside. It's not quite that loud, but uh, it's still really loud. Like you notice when it goes off and people react completely differently. The stimulus of having a sim round fly at you and the stimulus mm -hmm. of a giant bang going off are two different things. People react differently to both of those. Um, and so this is kind of a concept that Bill Rapier introduced me to a long time ago. I was asking him about force on force stuff. And he said that he thought that blanks were one of the best ways to really find out what people are going to do under fire. Because if you're in like this really enclosed, uh, enclosed area and full power blanks, there's blanks that have different levels of flash and noise and stuff. But if you're running like real blanks um, and that goes off, you're going to see how people react to that stimulus which is another big part of the equation. So I think you should do all of the above. You should do runs having the role players with blanks. You should do stuff with simunitions. 
maybe you should do it where they don't know which one so they don't know exactly what they're going to get like all of this stuff the force on force is so complicated um but it's absolutely not just okay i went shooting now me and this other dude are going to play tag with our sim guns and like see what happens yeah yeah another thing that i don't think that the simulation guns prepare people for is you, you mentioned the noise but you shoot actual firearms in an enclosed space like a bedroom whatever there's physically felt percussion that comes back the sound waves bouncing off the walls and coming back uh, if you're in like a school setting or whatever, guess what, folks? You're going to have amazing amounts of dust come out of those ceiling tiles. And yeah, that's just stuff that the sim gun's not going not gonna to represent. It just doesn't create enough force for that to happen. Not at all. And again, try not to bring things up if they don't bring value to the conversation, <laughs> but just on the kind of experience side of this in my incident there were 15 rounds exchanged between three people in about two and a half seconds um, basically within one room uh within one room of each other indoors and <laughs> to say that was loud <laughs> would be an understatement so yeah it is very much it, it'll uh it, it'll wake you up if you're a little sleepy and you just Oh, man, there's something I want to bring up right now, but I know you can't talk about it because of an agency restriction. But something happened in that gunfight that certain people on the Internet say never happens. And after you and I, talk, yeah, after you and I talked about your actual incident, uh, I reached out to four Midwest agencies well mid-size not midwest but mid-size agencies it's like hey have you ever had this occur you're like oh yeah we had it yeah i walked around our sheriff's office and asked a couple of guys and they told me of several instances they've been involved where it had actually happened that they were involved in the incident i'm like huh certain talking heads on the internet are saying that this never happens because of x and i'm like yeah it happens may not be on video but it happens Another wonderful thing about the media, so yeah. did a couple uh, more stuff. Literally, almost nothing about that whole thing on the internet is true, but uh, uh, the fact that they, they made some videos on the incident and things like that, I'm, I'm able to talk a little bit more about it, okay. and the, the thing that you're discussing being... Uh, People on the internet say that bad guys don't shoot at things they can't see and won't shoot through walls. They will. They will shoot through walls, 100%, especially if they think David Cagle is on the other side of the wall. So, uh, yeah, that is absolutely a thing. And it's interesting you bring that up because Will Petty from Centrifuge, I, I think I can find I think it's like right here because I messaged him after, after he posted it. Uh, Will put up some stuff. It was like more of that centrifuge data stuff that everyone on the mm -hmm. internet hates. Um, but it was statistics <laughs> over uh, over people shooting through walls and things like that, which I'd never seen before. Uh, mm -hmm. Most law enforcement training doesn't cover it. And it was basically talking about the prevalence of it and the fact that it does happen all the time. 
Uh, I know I talked to Hearn shortly after my gunfight, and he knew of some dudes that it happened mm-hmm. to. Uh, Rob Hot actually knew a guy that was unfortunately killed that way. Yeah. Uh, I talked to Chuck Pressburg about it, uh, Jared Reston, like all of the, every person that I like tried to go to and do a debrief with on it had like multiple different uh, examples they could think of of it happening. And to this day, I've still never seen it covered in in training very well. What exactly to do if that happens, uh, which is an interesting. But yeah, if you see if you see people on the internet that say that bad guys only shoot at what they can see, and so concealment is the same thing as cover. Incorrect. Oh, one of our guys. I'm sorry. I walked over you a little bit and, it, and your digital went out. What were you saying? Oh, I just said, in my experience, not true. Yeah, after your incident, and I started reaching out and looking for specific uh, examples. Um, one of our guys, when he worked for a prior agency, had rounds fired through a wall at him. He was in a hallway, and the rounds came so close to him that he had sheet rot dust yeah. on the front of his uniform. It's, and it's, uh, and it's not just a cop thing. Uh, uh, a detective from a midwestern city, mid-sized midwestern city, told me he knew of two instances in which bad guy private citizen were exchanging. And, okay. Yeah. Um, in which one, like an armed robber, fired through a door at a victim, and and the like. And so it's. I understand that whole notion of because you, you see it in a force on force scenario that people would shoot through the rack of Cheetos um, because they couldn't see yeah, somebody. That, that's another thing that's like a yeah. big thing is like, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually another huge artificiality yeah. is concealment yeah. is the same thing as cover for the most part yeah. um, when it comes to sim guns. Because if you're behind a blanket that's thick enough, it's going to stop a sim round. Uh, but anything thicker than a piece of cardboard is going to stop a sim round pretty much. Mm-hmm. So people get, they do weird stuff and uh, yeah, that actually fits in well, but yeah, that's, I really did. I, I meant to come on the podcast and not mention anything about it, but I, I'm trying not to be the war story guy because that mm-hmm. annoys me. But I do think that there are times like if you have certain experience and it, relates directly to what you're talking about people can benefit from that so i think Uh there's a a middle ground between people who say i hate instructors that just tell war stories and people who are like i want to hear all the war stories like there's a middle ground yeah if they're relevant if they're relevant i think they have value and i've gone to specifically because they had relevant experience to what i was trying to learn right yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny, you know. Hearn and I did a very early episode of the show that was titled "Do We Shoot Too Much in Shooting Classes?" And a, um, very recently, in a training event, a individual I won't name him, uh, he may out himself in the Facebook show group if he wants to, uh, said said to me we were both students, and he looked over to me after a conversation had erupted he said sometimes i think we talk too much in shooting classes absolutely (laughs) that happens as well so um 
to clarify my my last point, last thing I'll say about this yeah. is, uh, did you listen to uh, Eric and John Dobbs' uh, podcast, Life After Deadly Force, that they did with uh, Matt Lanfair, the primary and secondary modcast? I have not listened to that one yet, but I have twice done a presentation called The Aftermath that was those two guys and me talking about use of force systems. Okay, I knew they'd done that at like TACCON and stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah, my deal completely different, obviously, mm -hmm. and they both had super unique experiences. But one thing that I think is interesting to note is because I used to do it too. I'm sure people listen to this and they'll be like Googling stuff. It is truly shocking to me to this day. I went one night a couple weeks ago, I went and just read all of the different news articles and stuff about my incident. Truly, when I say probably 80% of the stuff that is written about it is just completely false. Yep. Not exaggerating. Um, and if you read, there's like four or five different articles about it. They all tell like a completely different story. Like it's not even because, yeah, there's not even a coherent thing. So the media manipulation is, is like a real uh -huh. thing. I will say pretty much the only legitimate, um, the only legitimate, source that i know of is the jones police department's like official press release that they put out on their facebook page and some other places that does a pretty good yeah. job of of saying what happened but uh like even when me and uh my partner at the time for that call the guy who i was backing on the call when we ended up getting the medal of valor uh, the, they did like the Medal of Valor ceremony or whatever and then they did more articles on it and they still didn't get it right during that so like you that that could be a podcast in and of itself but it's like if you are expecting like every news news article i read now i'm like i wonder if that's even kind of accurate because i know everything i've ever been involved with in law enforcement where they wrote a news article about it after i'm like that's not even sort of sort of what happened yeah. yeah i, I did an i did an interview on a high profile incident one time and I'm standing in front of the sign to our sheriff's office for the interview. So like the name of the sheriff's office is on the sign that I'm standing in front of. You can clearly read it in the video footage and they got the name of the agency that I worked for wrong. Oh yeah. That, that's one well, of like the in the little graphic up underneath as I'm speaking. And my, the, I work yeah. for the Oconee County Sheriff's office. I'm standing in front of the Oconee County Sheriff's Office sign, the graphic above, above below my name as they're playing the thing live says that I work for the Clark County Sheriff's Office. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's the exact kind of stuff I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, probably the worst article about the whole thing uh, refers to me exclusively as Deputy Cagle. You haven't earned the right to be called deputy. But yeah, that's that's what I thought. I was like, Lee is going to be so upset when he sees this like completely reverses roles and all kinds of just weird mm -hmm. stuff like it's i'm not a big fan of the media but i really didn't mean to spin off on that tangent yeah. i was like i know uh i know how things are and i'm like i did mention it so i have to mention that that yeah. uh disclaimer that i always put anytime someone says anything about it I'm yeah like, it's yeah it's, it's funny when i've actually you know, read incident report or written the incident report 
from back when I actually did cop stuff, you know, written mm-hmm. the incident report and seeing how it gets reported on. Yeah, well, I, I obviously I have a copy of mm-hmm. the whole investigation report from my deal, and I was reading it and I was like, I really wish I could leak this to the media so that they could <laughs> get all this stuff right. Because I'm like, oh, these are some. This is some stuff that would fix a lot of that, but yeah. just crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, Freedom of Information Act myself. That may need to be another podcast episode of all the 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 stuff we can talk about that was completely misreported and oh, actual yeah. instances. And yeah. I just the last thing I'll say on that was. You know, there, there's there's an incident that one of our form, now former guys was involved in that I saw all the stuff that went around the Internet about his incident. But then I was in the courtroom for the trial and the trial did not hinge on any of the stuff that the Internet claimed was was, was deciding in the case. Yep, that's not shocking whatsoever. Yeah, that whole case came down to where the deputy's flashlight was pointed. And nothing else. We keep coming up with better podcast ideas. I have a story that relates to use of force too. So maybe we'll have to do that. It's crazy. We've been going about an hour and a half. And I know it's what, what time is it where you are right now? It is currently 0237 in the morning here. (laughs) Uh, I I got (laughs) off duty at uh, midnight. Okay. All right. Well, it's it's seven thirty six Eastern where I'm at. So PM. Yeah. So uh, David, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this and and making this happen. We've been, we've been trying to coordinate schedules for a while, yes. but uh, you know, uh, getting Central and Eastern time zones to work together is a, not nearly as difficult as getting whatever time zone you're in right now because there's like an eight hours difference. Yeah. Thing. It- Plus your duty schedule and like. Um, I I will say I ha- I have one other thing that I have. Sure, to say. absolutely. I am a details person. I try to be, and so I've listened to every other podcast I've done with you like three times all the way through, and I'm like, man, I wish I said this one sentence differently. But one thing that I think I said that was a glaring mistake in one of the early podcasts that I did with you was you asked me a question that I was not prepared for. Uh, We were talking about kind of my training journey and going through the systems of first training at CSAT and going through all Tom's classes and uh, all the rapiers classes and the different systems of shooting and stuff. And you asked me, you're like, well, what pieces of each do you think you you use now or something to that effect? Mm -hmm. And I don't remember. I said something. I said something weird. Like I didn't really go into it. And probably half a dozen times since then, I've been like laying in bed at night and I'm like, well, I use this thing from that system and I didn't give credit to my instructor. And I'm big on giving credit to my instructors. So quick overview, I would say I use parts of everything of everyone that I've trained with. Obviously, my base will always be and has always been Paul Howe's system at CSET. Then when I started training with Bill Rapier, that changed things dramatically because I use all of his retention shooting stuff and integrated combatives, integrating edge weapons, all of that. That was a massive influence. All of Tom and Daryl Bulky's shotgun stuff, 
So I would not say I'm overly based in one system now because I definitely have used things from every instructor that I've trained with. So I did not want to offend anyone that I've trained with because I just hadn't thought out what all I used from different systems. And I now have a Word document that I made in response to that with all of the different pieces that I'm using from different stuff. Like, okay, I do this one manipulation from Dave Spaulding and handgun combatives and like, uh, so I don't know, I've overthought that a lot and I needed to set the record straight before we went sure. off the air. Sure. That's it. Uh, one thing that I want to caution you about, you're in your mid twenties now, right? I am. Well, yes, very mid twenties. I am now 25. So. All right. There. Well, when your passion and your job become the same thing and you devote so much of your life to it and your whole circle of friends ends up coming from it. When you get into your fifties, this guy sitting right here and you look around and go I've prepared my whole life for this thing and now I'm not sure if I want this thing anymore you know and Brian and I Aishish and I were talking about this on the phone the other day it's like I don't want to walk away from my circle of friends and I still enjoy the training side of the aspect and all but I wish I had another hobby. I wish I had something else that I enjoyed as much as this. Don't paint yourself into a corner. That is, that's actually advice I have been getting on several fronts recently. Mm -hmm. I will say, side note, Brian Eastridge does have another hobby, which is pissing people off on the internet. <laughs> so he can always fall back to that. But, uh, Yes, I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. And I'm definitely I've been laser focused on this stuff pretty much since I was 16 or so. So that's uh, I am. I'm trying to branch out, you know. Yeah, find something else that you enjoy. That has nothing to do with this whole life. And get good at it as well that takes you in another, and, and that can involve people that are not from this life as well. That has been one positive thing about my current girlfriend is despite trying, I have not been able to get her into any of this stuff whatsoever. So all of our activities together basically do not include training of any kind, which I'm not complaining about, but helps my it helps me diversify my portfolio of life activities like you're talking about but i can remember back in the academy days they warned us about making sure that you kept friendships outside of the job yes definitely. And, and, the, and, the, and the like and now i'm looking at it and i'm, I'm not disgruntled i'm not burned out i just but I, I just the other day i was thinking if all of this were to end tomorrow what's left for me what what else do i do and I think it was Greg Elifritz, I'm, I want to credit Greg with it, that wrote an article called like, I don't hang out with cops or something that mm -hmm. is basically everything you're talking about. Like, I do this at work. Why would I want to do this outside of work? I want to say that was Greg because I read a lot of stuff that he writes. But 
yes. Anyways, that article was basically all the stuff you're talking about, and I am tracking 100. Uh, percent So I, I'm in that phase right now where I'm looking for a hobby that doesn't involve any of my work, because all of my all of my stuff has become so integrated with all right, my my academic career, right tied into my professional career which ended up tying into the training career and i'm like and i'm i'm actively looking for something right now that that will give me some sort of other avenue and i don't know what it's going to be so while you still have a chance to get good at something else (laughs) i wish i could play golf i just i never could develop the skill something along that line like some other thing that I could go to. Definitely, I definitely have other things that I'm into. They just all sort of indirectly mm-hmm. tie back into different things that make you more capable. Cause like I've been super into ham radios recently, just uh-huh. upgrading from a technician level license to a general level license. And ham radio guys are like the complete opposite of gun dudes for the most part. So that's been an interesting kind of kind of journey. But yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm, I'm tracking what you're saying on, on the different hobbies stuff. Just, just, just make sure that you have other outlets in your life uh, because at some point. Certainly. At, at at some point, point. It, is, it is not my brother or either of my best friends or any of those people because we all train together kind of as much as humanly possible. So I do, I do see where you're going with that. Because here's the thing that we all have to face. The institution will continue without us. And sometimes the institution will cast you aside. OceanGate already posted the job opening for the new guy to drive their little submarine thing. And and we all think that we become indispensable or so valuable or whatever. If the institution, at some point, is going to turn us back on you at some point. And they may like when you show up at a retiree picnic, hey, how you doing? Whatever. Then they go right back to doing whatever they go do. Um, Have somewhere to go. Have something to step into. What you got to say in closing? Um, In closing. Well, normally this is where people like plug their own stuff, right? And they're like, find my class Mm -hmm. schedule at. But I won't have a class schedule for a little while because I'm uh, I'm overseas for for a good period of time. So I will say, if you want to train while I'm gone, not train with me. I highly recommend training with all of the other guys from American Tactical Shooting Instruction, uh, Kevin Kelly, Brian Resnick, David Costa, obviously founder Bill Rapier. All those guys teach classes. They're all awesome. They're as good as they get. Um, also, obviously. Uh, hardwired tactical shooting, Daryl Bulky, and now Brian Eastridge is teaching with him a lot. Anything you can take from Wayne Dobbs, um, the Thunderstick Summit, which I will miss for the second year in a row due to the military, uh, which I'm upset about. So uh, Revolver Roundup from Hits, any of that stuff is awesome. So Amtac shooting, hardwired tactical shooting, even though I don't teach there anymore, uh, anything you can take from combat shooting and tactics, I could not recommend that any higher um, and you won't be able to train with Paul Howe forever. So definitely get on that. Uh, and yeah, that's, I'll be putting some stuff up on like the hardwired tactical website or 
not the website because the website's still under construction, the Facebook page. Uh, I posted the article, I posted an article about apprenticeship a while back and some stuff like that. So I'll, I'll be trying to do some writing, staying connected with guys. But uh, yeah, as of now, that's pretty much it. Well, all righty, man. Thank you for making this happen and taking the time to be here tonight. Hey, well, thank you for having me on. Seriously, I consider it such an honor considering that all of my heroes basically are the other guests on this show all the time. So as many times as you will let me come on the show, I'm, I'm happy to come, you know, ramble about stuff that people want sure. to hear about for some reason. So sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you for, for again, for coming on. Uh, for the audience, we know that your number one asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us.